Hi, everybody. Cora here. Welcome back to Rev on Air, the Rev on Vert podcast, a place for sustainable storytelling with founders, activists, creatives, and phenomenal individuals who are paving the way for a more conscious future for us all. Today, my guest is the amazing Nat Kelly, Hollywood actress, regenerative and indigenous activist, and Kiss the Ground board member. I truly can't wait to bring this conversation to you as Nat and I discuss so many things I'm passionate about. But first, I want to say a really heartfelt thank you to Redmond for making today's podcast possible. Redmond weaves together the ancient wisdom of traditional Chinese medicine with modern innovations to create powerful health rituals that form well-rounded self-care routines. They understand the crucial connection between skin health and internal health, which is why they created exceptional skincare and body care collections that are infused with potent botanicals that are well known in ancient herbology, traditional Chinese medicine books. Redmond was founded by Helena Fan, a doctor of TCM, who struggled with health issues for years before turning to a more holistic solution herself. Through this, she discovered the power of traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, herbal medicine, and skincare topicals. For our lucky listeners in Northern California, Redmond has beautiful spas in San Francisco that are truly urban sanctuaries, somewhere you can retreat to for a well-rounded approach to well-being, from facials to acupuncture to bodywork to their herbal bar, where they have all sorts of herbal elixirs. You can head to redmint.com, R-E-D-M-I-N-T.com, to shop their amazing topical range and to find out more about their San Francisco wellness locations. Thank you again to Redmond. And now on to Nat. So Nat was born in Peru and raised in Australia by her indigenous mother and grandmother. After working with street children in Sao Paulo, Brazil and Aboriginal inner city youth in Redfern, Australia, she began her degree in social science and policy at the University of UNSW. Not long after, she started to work as an actress in film and television in the U.S. with notable roles in shows like Dynasty and most recently as the star of ABC's The Baker and the Beauty. Despite this change in her life, she remained inwardly mindful of her privilege and the responsibility to her indigenous heritage and people. After the 2019 fires in the Amazon in Australia, Nat experienced a shift in consciousness that led her to drastically change not just her lifestyle, but the way she engaged with social media and her followers. She's worked to become an advocate for indigenous peoples, regenerative agriculture, the soil, and the undervalued but invaluable role of fungi in our ecosystem. Nat is now committed to using her storytelling skills to be a voice for the voiceless, creating narratives of hope around the power of nature to regenerate and heal and the integral part humans have to play in this process. Nat is on the board of both Kiss the Ground and the Fungi Foundation. She works in deep devotion and service to the entire web of life, advocating in particular for the health of our soil, water, the fungi, and forests. Her mission is the preservation of biodiversity, including cultural and microdiversity on the planet. This is a beautiful conversation full of insights on indigenous wisdom, the resilience and strength of nature, and ultimately our role in supporting both of these things. So now on to Nat. Hi, Nat. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to come talk to us today. I am so excited um, because I feel like I get to talk to you about some of the things that I feel are most concerning at the present time and you're covering a lot of those exact topics with everything and all of your work so thank you and I I always sort of like to start at the very beginning really with all of our guests I, I truly find that the way that we're brought up and our experiences in our younger years can often lead into the people we become so can you tell us a little bit about sort of the early years and 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 the the start of, of Nat Kelly basically <laughs> Thank you for inviting me onto this podcast and for the opportunity to discuss these very important issues. And yeah, for the opportunity to reflect on my childhood, which, um, as you mentioned, um, you know, they our childhoods do impact and shape the people that we are going to become. And so the very fact that I was born in Peru to an Indigenous mother, born into incredible poverty, generational poverty, um, that shaped me, even though I was able to immigrate with my mother when I was just two years old uh, to Australia. And my life obviously changed overnight, but I never forgot 
where I came from. And I still carry the cellular memory and the cellular trauma of what had happened to my ancestors in the last 500 years, the legacy that colonization has left on my life and on the lives of my mothers and my grandmothers. In Peru, we have a saying um, in Quechua, um, well, the Spanish saying from a, from a Quechua um, phrase is la teta asustada, the scared breast. And it's a folkloric way of saying that the trauma of the mother is passed on through the breast milk into the child. Um, there's a wonderful movie by that name um, set in Peru that I encourage people to watch um, that talks about this kind of uh, generational trauma, trauma being passed down from mothers to their children. And that's kind of what I felt growing up, even though I had this pretty idyllic childhood in Australia. I always, um, I, I could feel through the anger of my mom sometimes and the frustration of my mother. And I could, and when my grandmother came to visit us and, and eventually came to live with us in Australia, I could feel this, cellular memory of of violence violence against women violence against the land and it it disturbed my frequency as a child in that I was always oriented towards justice like any kind of violence or injustice would really uh touch me to my core and I remember one of my earliest memories was my mother letting me stay home from school the day that Nelson Mandela was freed. I got to see his speech. One of the first books that I read was his autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom. And that was very much how my family, or my mother in particular, oriented me towards the fight to end injustice, uh, especially towards Indigenous people, people of color all around the world. Um, I really resonated with the with the African struggle against apartheid, even though I don't have ties to South Africa, it was something that inspired me from a young age. Um, yeah, so when other girls on the wall had pictures of like Hanson and, and Backstreet Boys, I had pictures of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. And so I, yeah, I've always felt like I've been born for revolution, only that this time round, I feel very strongly that the revolution will be nonviolent and will be cultural and will be a, a revolution in consciousness and in heart. Um, that's the next revolution that humanity is waiting for. And so, yeah, I was born to be a little revolutionary and <laughs> has, you know, was raised um, to believe in equality and to know have kind of tasted what that what that could look like. Um, Australia is a pretty egalitarian society. And so I was lucky to have experienced what it was like to have the best education um, that money can't buy, that you could only get in on the, to these places uh, via merit. And so being on the, those kind of merit-based systems, I think really also impacted me too. And then when I moved to America and I saw how the system is just rigged against you if you're not born into a family of means, how you can't go to any of the best universities unless you're one of the lucky, lucky few who make it on a scholarship. And it just felt like, you know, because I had been um, privy to another way of, of um, societal organization, I... I just feel like I've always been somebody to point out when systems aren't working and say like, hang on, I think there's a better way of, do of doing things. And so it was a big learning experience when I came to America and I saw some of the things that I felt were really, you know, like not working here um, with health and education and the way we, we take care of those most vulnerable in our society. I also want to flag that Australia is not some utopia um, and that, you know, I also witnessed an enormous enormous injustices and all kinds of violence against Indigenous people, whether that was um, actual physical violence in prisons or state-sanctioned systemic violence and racism against them. So don't want to say that, you know, Australia has it all figured out, 
but uh, it definitely left a huge imprint on me with regards to um, fairness and equality and a true meritocracy. And so um, you would think that with all these ideals and inspirations, I would go on to be somebody in politics. And I went to school for social science and politics. Um, but I ended up uh, getting a bit sidetracked as an actress, um, which has always been one of my first uh, loves, I guess, if you had asked me when I was younger, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always said, an actress and a lawyer. <laughs> like I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to to be right and, and argue and fight for justice. And so um, I feel like now in my career, after having um, a really beautiful, like for me, commercial and critical success in The Baker and the Beauty two years ago on Netflix when that came out and went number one. I felt like after 17 years in the industry of ups and downs and career that was over and then came back and like, you know, I, I felt like I finally achieved something that for me was a huge benchmark of success, having a number one show on Netflix, being the lead of that show. And, and so it was kind of like, well, what do I do now? Like the, you know, current kind of dominant model thinking is that I stay on this trajectory of ambition and 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 success um, as defined by Hollywood and look for some next big movie role and look to like be the lead of some franchise and um, yeah just keep aiming for bigger roles and more fame and more visibility and more endorsements and more money and like it was just this trajectory of more 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 but it was feeling like, especially when the pandemic hit, that that was like less and less what um, my true path was. And then I was feeling like it was time for me to say enough, like I have enough and I actually have more than what I need. So any trajectory solely based on making more money is not appealing to me. At this point, I'm interested in sharing this incredible platform that I have sharing all the incredible privileges that I have and making sure that I don't rest until there is a world that is liberated from oppressive systems, um, from oppression in general. And I want to devote now all of my storytelling talents and abilities and resources to telling the stories that I know are going to be critical for humanity's survival in the next 10 years. Uh, I don't intend on having children, but I hope that one day the children of my friends can look back and ask me, like, what did you do with this time? How did you spend this critical decade for humanity? What kind of stories did you decide to tell? And I know I won't be looking them in the eyes having to admit, well, I had to take this job where I played like a hitman and like, you know, it was about assassins or it was like about violence against women or it was like just promoting consumption. I had to take that job because you don't understand I was on a career trajectory to be like a really famous actress. I just feel like the last two years has been me kind of deprogramming myself from any any ambitions and aspirations that are not truly aligned with my soul's purpose. And that in itself has been such a beautiful gift and liberation. And now I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm free to do whatever I want and to tell the stories that I feel called to tell. And there's there's no more beautiful feeling, even if perhaps the money in my bank account is not what it could have been had I made some different decisions. I know that I know that I'm on the right path. Well, that is one of the most interesting introductions anyone has ever given me on this. And thank you. And it's just interesting, you know, so much of what you said really resonated with me. It's, I, I think also it's interesting how like our lives take these interesting paths. I I was studying environmental policy and law at school. That's what I got my master's degree in and then ended up in fashion because I felt like I couldn't get anyone to care about the things that I really wanted them to care about. Like I was, you know, this was 10 years ago and I would want to go out for wine with my girlfriends and you know having learned what I was learning I'd want to be talking about things that 10 years ago were bad now are completely horrific and you're like no one would really listen nobody wanted to talk about the glaciers melting over a glass of wine and nobody really wanted I know I wish I would have met you 10 years ago it would have made life much easier but it was sort of like I was I was looking for this thing that would connect the world 
that I knew sort of just was, and it was very hard to change. And I was like, could we bring people together through this medium of fashion in a way that is creative and beautiful and reflective of, you know, I still don't think industry is necessarily all bad when it's creating more regenerative systems and ways of, you know, crediting people for their work and all of this stuff. It's just, it, it is interesting. And I, it's so nice to hear someone say that like, I was able to decipher the difference between what success might've looked like to the rest of the world and success to me, what that looked like and to actually follow that path. And I think there's going to be a lot of people listening right now who are going, how the hell did she find the strength to do that and the will to walk away from something? And, you know, because we do, we've, we've lived in a world now where I feel like, so many of us have been programmed or pushed by our parents or, you know, been put into a system that is very hard to get out of. And I'd be really interested to just hear like how you went about listening to those inner voices or did you have a community around you that you drew from or, you know, where did you kind of find the will to really make that decision and devote your life to such an incredibly worthy cause? Hmm. And I'm sure it's multifaceted, but just yeah, I'd be so interested <clears throat> to know. I think the call came through pretty strongly at the beginning of 2020, literally three weeks before the pandemic hit. And I was in a ceremony and I heard my ancestors tell me that I needed to stop um, or to start, perhaps it's better, uh, representing myself as an Indigenous woman. Because at that time, I was playing Noah Hamilton. I had this blonde hair and, you know, half my ancestry is of European descent. So I am like both. And I can go both ways. And I was kind of having very, having a lot of fun and success in my, with my blonde hair being the European version of myself, the Australian side of myself. And in the ceremony, my Indigenous ancestors were like, yeah, but we're here too, and have you forgotten? And actually what we have to share with the world is so important right now. Mm. And um, that's kind of when I, and in that ceremony, I had asked them for healing around my throat chakra because I, had, I was feeling like it was really blocked. And I received a really beautiful healing and um, one that I saw visually as the um, facilitator came around and sang to, sang to me. I saw the Icaro, he was singing like, like um, I saw the sound frequency come out of his mouth and go directly to my throat and felt it starting to unwind and unblock. And yeah, the next day after I like couldn't shut up. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, I have so much to say. Indigenous people, we're being, we're being ignored. Our technologies are actually, it's, it's, it's what's going to save the world. And then I, I would want to say by coincidence, by, co by chance, but we know now that that doesn't, you know, that that's synchronicity or as Deepak Chopra says, synchronous destiny. Literally just a few weeks later, I find myself in New York City on a panel with Julia Watson, who is the author of a book called Low Tech that stands for local traditional ecological knowledge. And it's literally a book about how indigenous technologies are going to save the world because they're climate resilient. They're rooted in thousands of years of observation of the natural world and, and uh, the natural cycles of water, of seasons, of soil, carbon. And so it's a book full of all these solutions to some of our current most like pressing problems rooted in indigenous wisdom and technologies from design to waste management to agriculture so i'm on this panel with her a few weeks later and and um i'm realizing like oh my this is the message that i received that i need to start you know like speaking up for not just indigenous people and not just like you know there is um the, very much a reality that they face in which they are victims of oppression but there's also this other narrative that where the authors of beauty and authors of, for example, the Amazon rainforest is an indigenous creation. We are authors of incredible acts of engineering, of 
um, we're master agriculturalists, we were and still are master astronomers, and that our sciences, our technologies, which are rooted in our cosmovisions and values, are so valuable to the world right now. And that this also has to be the narrative that I uplift next to the Indigenous struggle for for sovereignty and and self-autonomy. And so um, Julia Watson has since become a dear friend. We're in the process of pitching a series around this concept of low tech. So it's actually, uh, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on just like how, how, how I, how seriously I took this mandate in the ceremony that I needed to wake up and start shifting the stories that I was telling. And so, um, I think for me, just to wrap up the answer to that question, it was rooted in like a very clear mandate and request from my ancestors in a prayer. Mm. And I would, I would encourage everybody to start tuning into their own ancestry and indigeneity because everybody can trace their lineage back towards some time before they were colonized. Even the European, their their indigenous Europeans, all indigenous, all Europeans have indigenous roots to somewhere in Europe, but there was even a um, pre-colonized communities there before the Roman civilization came, that they were very much connected to um, entheogens, you know, like they were taking a lot of plant medicines, they were communing with spirit, there was indigenous shamanism in Europe, um, connection to the gods and the goddesses. Um, and this was all kind of stamped out by various colonizers and ways of, um, yeah, of um, ways of enacting imperialism and patriarchy um over these indigenous communities so we all have it's not just me because i'm lucky enough to have ancestry in peru like we all can go back and trace our lineage to some pre-colonized ancestor and i encourage everyone to start asking like are there other ways of living and being that we might have forgotten because we think this is the only way but was there some way in the past that could illuminate how we could potentially be in the future? I'm taking this wonderful course on women in Mesoamerica. It's a history, a decolonized history course, um, challenging now a lot of the uh, archaeology, which we know is a male-dominated field in Latin America, arguing that a lot of the major statues and depictions that, and, and even burial of burials of mummies were at, now with this with new science we're discovering were women. These were women rulers. These were women leaders. And so this is just so exciting for me to imagine like, wow, patriarchy has only been on these lands for 500 years, you know, and it's not that long of a time in our 300,000 year human history to unwind. And before that, can you imagine the kinds of different ways we might have existed and lived in reciprocity and harmony? Like this isn't the only way, this current model that we're living in is just a short blip in our consciousness we can deprogram it and remember. I, you know, it's so funny because I feel really fortunate that I was probably one of the only white girls in Maine that grew up with a mother that was extremely fascinated by the Native Americans here. My parents went to New Mexico for their honeymoon and went out to kind of go to these areas and I remember when my mom and dad talk about it they were like it was just so depressing because we went on to land where Native American communities had been pushed to the very very brink of where they would be on their land and they were selling their wares and people were you know they're bargaining for them and you know going on to this land and having all of these sort of things that have been made up and my mom came back from that trip and gave me a book called Touch the Earth. Have you ever read it? No. So you probably wouldn't need to, but for a lot of people, I would highly suggest it. It is a, it's a series of essays that was collated by um, a historian who had deep ties to the Native American communities. And he took their writings and their essays from throughout the time that they were being colonized by the Europeans and their lands taken and their way of life decimated and all of their traditions being, you know, 
completely destroyed by these people that said that they knew better. And it really, it almost like, I can't almost talk about it without getting really emotional. And I was quite young when my mom gave it to me and it genuinely has stuck with me for so long. And I, I gave it to my husband for Christmas last year and he read it and he now walks around. We have a, we live here on Maine on the coast and there was this chapter that a man had written about how the white man has no respect for rocks. And he was like, but have we never thought that like a rock is also a living thing and it is in a place for a reason. And like, we just, as white men go around kicking rocks, moving rocks, blowing up rocks. It's so ungrateful. <laughs> I watch my husband go around the seashore on like tiptoes because he's literally like, it has stuck with him in the way that it's stuck with me. And I think there there's so much learning for people to do. And I think, you know, I know that you've said a lot of people should look at their own indigenous roots, but for people who maybe even just need to understand how we got to this place, like I know I listened to you on the Gang of Witches podcast and you talked about kind of going into Sydney and having your first real experience with like an indigenous community there and how they had been affected by you know, living in a relatively cosmopolitan area and and how that really stuck with you. And I, I'd love to just sort of hear your take on how how maybe we could all begin to understand and respect a little bit more these communities that we've sort of, I, I don't want to say like pushed the side, but I think that we kind of have. And we're now realizing that like we depend on them and they're holding the keys to what like 80 or 90% of the world's remaining biodiversity is protected by this extremely small group of people. And most people don't even understand how that has come to be or the importance of, of this. And I guess for anyone who's listening and is like, okay, like how do I start to comprehend this thing? And how do I start to support this, this group of people? Like, do you have any, you know, sort of advice on that to people that maybe are coming at this and they have open minds, and open hearts, but they maybe don't quite understand just how important this culture is and how mistreated they historically have been. And I'm sorry, that's a mm. really big question <laughs> to give to you. Um, first, I'd like to put it in to a science perspective for people just coming from a conservation biodiversity angle. So let's fast forward into the future and say and hope that humanity has survived. And they're going through the records, the, the um, geological and soil records, and they're tracing the, the chart of biodiversity in America. Let's just say Turtle Island, America. They would say that uh, humans arrived um, at least 30,000 years ago. And for 30,000 years, that in in the under the stewardship of the humans who arrived here biodiversity started increasing um that forests started to have more foods and medicines available for humans so the the, the forests increase in biodiversity the animals were managed in such a way that they increase in biodiversity and then they would say that after the year 1491 or 1492 things go really wrong with biodiversity. It starts to plummet. Full species start going extinct. The forest starts getting cut down. The amount of foods that are, the, the crop species that our humans are eating decreases. Um, and then our new human nutrition starts going down. Our well-being starts going down because we're no longer eating all these biodiverse plants and animals. We're just eating these 10 foods. And, 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 then they start to see like, you know, humans engaging in all these acts of violence and mass migration because they can see that the climate change is completely wiping out areas, making it impossible for agriculture there. And so you, you would think like, oh my God, something terrible must have happened in 1492 to reverse this trend of biodiversity growth and put it into such decline. What was that? It was the European discovery of the Americas. And it was the transfer of European values considered to be more civilized, considered to be more modern, um, to replace 
the many indigenous cultures and values and cosmovisions that existed here, all in the name of white supremacy and superiority and thinking that the newcomers from Europe had better ideas on how to grow food, on which, on how, which animals to eat, on how to live, and how, how to build cities, how to build structures of government. Well, if you look around just at the empirical data available to us, clearly their way was not better in terms of biodiversity loss, in terms of now we're seeing full ecosystem collapse, clearly at the, at the very least as being stewards of the land and the waters, this new mentality has failed. And this is, I wanted to drive that example home to show how important it is, not just from a moral standpoint to say, I'm sorry that my ancestors caused genocide on these lands. And I'm sorry that we lied in our treaties and all of this land is stolen and unseated. I'm sorry for wiping out whole entire species and driving ecosystems to the brink of collapse in the name of greed. I'm sorry. That's all important. But if we don't realize that it, it's because we need to now partner with Indigenous people and say, please teach us, like w w then we're missing the whole point of this. It's not that the Indigenous people just want this big apology. It's that we're sitting here with thousands and thousands of years of accumulated climate data on how to live and, and, and prosper and bring abundance and increase biodiversity on these lands. And we're just waiting for you guys to realize that we have the answers. And imagine what we could do if we could partner together uh, and, and rebuild new futures built on Indigenous wisdom that, like I said, has been here growing for thousands and thousands of years. Like, is, what, isn't it wise to just acknowledge that we've been a little bit arrogant and in our superiority, we've missed some of the most brilliant, um, climate resilient technologies and ideas that have been under our nose this whole time except they've come from a community of people that we have been culturally trained to say are primitive are you know are extinct anyway are not relevant so how do we start reprogramming that reprogramming that mentality and centering indigenous people not just as victims of oppression but as as potential authors for a new human destiny that could be rooted in justice for all living beings harmony and justice for all living beings. And I think, you know, that is a perfect way to frame it. And I feel like a really good example of something like that is, you know, a, some, a topic I wanted to get into with you, which is, I know that you're, I think on the board of directors at Kiss the Ground, but you're, you're working towards regenerative agriculture. And I feel like that is a term now that people are becoming more familiar with it's being thrown around in everywhere from like luxury fashion to food to you know I'm, people are now familiar with that but I think less so and I think there should be an acknowledgement that these principles are basically coming off the back of indigenous wisdom without very many people I feel at least here in the states being included in that conversation and it's a really interesting moment because I feel like it's the first sort of thing that I've seen really take off that I feel like has the amazing ability to unite people, get people excited because it truly feels like a sustainable solution. It feels really good to be a part of. How can you speak a little bit about your experiences with this? Because I feel like you're sort of bridging this really interesting gap that that is happening in terms of this movement where you're actually bringing in the voices of the people that we need to to credit this to in the first place, because I feel like, you know, I worry that we might miss a trick in this whole like rush to being regenerative, where we don't actually involve the, the people that should be credited with this way of doing things in the first place. Uh, yes, you bring up a very good point, you know, like what, like, how should we define this term regenerative agriculture, who gets to use it, and what it's, what is, what are its origins? Um, so I would like to propose a definition that regenerative agriculture is any kind of uh, agricultural intervention by humans that leaves an ecosystem more biodiverse and um, more healthier than when they found it. Okay, so it's leaving a place better than when you first than when you first find it. Okay, 
Um, I would propose that Indigenous people have been the living embodiment of that definition for thousands and thousands of years on this continent. Like I mentioned, the Amazon rainforest. Um, it's now being proven that the Amazon rainforest is a human construction invention, a co-collaboration co co um, with, with the natural world. Um, I hesitate to say with nature because it implies that humans are not a part of nature. And that's also a Eurocentric idea that I want to try to um, dismantle, that there's humans and there's nature. And actually in Quechua, there's no word for nature because it doesn't exist as a construct because everything is nature, including us. And so I would say that the Amazon rainforest was able to be built and created by humans because they understood their part in nature, in the ecosystem, as a keystone species, which is a species that the other species rely on for their survival. Okay, imagine that. So that is our human potential, and that is what Indigenous people were doing here for thousands of years before the Europeans came and interrupted that. Um, they, we were building biodiversity. We were leaving places uh, with increased topsoil. Uh, the Incas were doing this. I mean, most civilizations collapsed due to a lack of food. The Incas is one of the only known civilizations in which the Spanish um, confirm that after the fall of the Inca Empire and they raided all the Spanish, uh, sorry, the Inca kind of storehouses, they were overflowing with food and grain. Okay, and this is without depleting any soil, without one drop of glyphosate or pesticides. It's because they understood the carbon cycle. They understood how to work with the water. It's because they treated the soil as if she were alive. In fact, that's why we say Pacha Mama, Earth Mother, because we give sentience to the earth, to the water, to the mountains, and as such treat these elements um, and these pillars of life with incredible respect. So. Um, that's why a lot of Indigenous people were disappointed with the, the storytelling that uh, Kiss the Ground did in omitting this long and incredible history of humans intervening with agriculture and leaving more biodiversity. Um, there are examples of it in North America too. I don't want to say that it just happened in South America. And so um, Kiss the Ground very humbly and very beautifully offered an apology for having missed this and I believe like there's being a follow-up uh, there's a follow-up movie being made to address this big chunk of time that we that the movie um didn't include and that said I want to say that I still think Kiss the Ground is a wonderful movie and it is the movie that woke me up to the incredible potential of regenerative agriculture and I'm sure many people listening have watched it and if you haven't please do um I there's no more compelling uh, story on to stream that uh, that shows the the capacity the power that regenerative agriculture has not just to heal our soil and uh, provide us with more nutritious food provide food sovereignty but to reverse climate change this is our best chance and it it's why that I have given my life to this cause and I am lucky enough to be on the board of Kiss the Ground. Um, but in my, I also want to say that, um, you know, there's so many different ways we can define regenerative agriculture and that it looks different in depending on where you are. And Kiss the Ground really focused on um, what that might look like in the United States, restoring um, degraded farmland by using rotational grazing of animals like cows. That's wonderful. But in Mexico, regenerative agriculture involves reforestation and recreating the forest gardens, the food forests that the Mayas, uh, pre-Mayas even, built and redefining what we think of as agriculture and showing people that agriculture, that a farm can look like a forest. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to exclude trees. Um, it can be within the trees, and this is something that I am now like getting very deep into, and will be going to study in a few weeks. But agroforestry, to me, that is the future in many of these places where the forests have been lost. You know, it's not just about putting a bunch of cows in there to rotate, to graze, to rotationally graze. If you can rebuild a forest and and eat your food from a forest, I really would encourage that because um, 
not only is that going to sequester a lot more carbon and provide to and and move us closer to rewilding you know all the places that we've lost all the beautiful wild places that we've lost providing habitats for animals promoting and increasing biodiversity but i believe that it can return us to also our true our true place in the ecosystem when i was in the amazon rainforest visiting the sapara tribe in ecuador i saw like wow there's no existential angst about what they're supposed to do with their lives because when when you're involved in the act of creation and creating building building ecosystems there's no depression or sadness or oh you know like what sh- what degree should i get one in marketing or one in finance you know because you don't have to worry about like a degree to get a job to pay a mortgage to eat food to live because you're building a forest in which you will live and in, in, in which you will be provided for in every single way spiritually medicinally in terms of um you know food water it's your church it's it's everything the forest is everything and so yeah you've seen me this is like thanks for letting me rant on about this you know this new direction in my life but i'm convinced that this is where i get off you know like kiss the ground and regenerative agriculture was like one stop on the way to agroforestry and i'm like oh i'll get off here and i'm going to make my life and live at this stop thank you <laughs> This is where you'll find me. I, it just, it makes me so happy because one of the, I I know I shouldn't say that I have favorite podcasts that I've done, but one of my favorites is with um, a man. Have you ever heard of him? It's Sidney Etienne. He started, he started at Grown in Haiti. So love him. You two would like, you two would love each other. And Sidney, I had him on. So he literally was born in Haiti, moved to New York lived in New York for 20 years was like, what am I doing with my life? He was like being pulled back to Haiti. Like he was like, my soul was being pulled. So he went back. He literally like bought a small piece of land and like lived in a tent for two years and just started planting trees and, and watching this go on. And, and what I loved about that was he was like, do not let anyone tell you, you need millions of dollars or huge investors or farm equipment or anything to like, do this like he was like if I can do it like anyone can do it and he's now like so he's now like five years in literally if you go on his Instagram you can see the before and after pictures of like when he first got there versus like this insane forest now where he's growing like all of his own food he's done a community center for the local kids to like come and learn about this it's incredible and what you said about like how it's just like you won't have any sort of angst and anxiety and he said that exactly like in New York I was always going to like a yoga class or like juicing or doing all this shit because he was kind of modeling on the side and he was like and I was still always stressed out and then I just now I just like I just am and I I asked him I I asked him the most American question ever I was super embarrassed after I asked it I was like but like what's like your ultimate goal Sydney and he was like Cora don't ask that question. Like he was like, the goal is like, I die planting trees. Like the goal is there is no goal. I just keep going and going and going until I die. And I was like, that is like the best answer ever. And I was like, I'm sorry I asked you the goal question. I know I shouldn't have, but it just, in a way I'm glad I did because it just highlighted the fact that like so many of us, myself included, have to remind ourselves that oftentimes we need to stop and remember that like, life is a journey and the journey is supposed to be fun and amazing and fulfilling. And we're not like really reaching an end goal. If we're lucky, you know, like the goal is that every day is just lived with purpose and, you know, and content. And I think that this is really, really like what I'm trying to get at. And I think that with this idea of like regenerative agriculture and you've brought up the Amazon now quite a few times. And I did want to ask you about this because I like, I think many others watched the last election in Brazil with bated breath, obviously it, 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 um, it felt to me almost more consequential than the last American election, because it felt like if we went any further in the direction of deforestation in the Amazon, then like game over for humanity. Like it really was almost that bad. And 
I was really vested in it, but I realized kind of talking around that maybe not all that many people understand quite what's going on in the Amazon. And I think even more importantly, how our Western demands and consumption habits have contributed to what's going on in the Amazon and the deforestation. And I'd love to have you as someone who's been to the Amazon, as someone who I know was like very involved with these people and can understand it and maybe speak to it really well in a way better than I ever could. Like just what has happened in the Amazon. And and also I'd love for you to sort of end with this message of hope because the election did go in a much better direction than it could have. But, you know, can you speak a little bit about, about what's happened there and how it's sort of almost a bigger picture, like problem of like everywhere else in the world that I feel like is exemplified very much so in Brazil. Uh, yeah. So, um, first of all, I think it's important for people to understand, um, that there's probably only less than a 10th, if that actually, no, my math is wrong. I would say there's only like 1% of the population that used to be in the Amazon. Like they're now, um, the one benefit of deforestation has been the the that these huge um ge- like these huge geoglyphs uh, i think that's what they're called but these huge kind of mound structures have now been revealed um and uh in places that the amazon has been deforested for cattle farms and so they've sent in the archaeologists who are now confirming that there were full civilizations in the Amazon, like up to 10 million people living in one of the cities there. Like if you think of 10 million people living in the Amazon today, I mean, it just wouldn't exist anymore because of the way that we imagine cities and humans and the pollution and the extraction. Like our cities are just like really degenerative and extractive. Um, But this is a new way of imagining like what, used to like how indigenous people used to live if they could if there was a city of 10 million people but it did it instead of leaving behind biological like ecosystem degradation it instead left behind ecosystem restoration and like i said this increase of biodiversity they're finding the places where humans intervene 90 percent more of the plants and and, and are are useful to humans are either food or medicine so you we have this different uh, this alternate narrative for humanity like humans can actually intervene in ecosystems and make them better now the reason why indigenous people are um are not currently able to do that right now in the amazon is because they are just fighting for their lives and they're just fighting for their land and fighting for survival and this is really sad that not only do we have to spend our lives fighting against the government and the extractive industries who want to come in and log and mine and and dump millions of barrels of of toxic waste like Chevron did in Ecuador without impunity with impunity you know like what like it's so sad that we can't just be building forests like we used to and living in harmony with the natural world and being able to really steward and take care of this amazing partially human-made ecosystem that is the Amazon. Instead, they have to be organizing, marching, fighting, protecting what they have because the oppression and the the um, the greed that is driving the push for their lands is relentless. It does just it does not let up. And just now, Lula and Sonia Guajajara, who's the first indigenous uh, minister of Brazil, one of the first indigenous women elected there, they just traveled to the territory of the Yanomami, who live in the north of the Brazilian Amazon on the border with Venezuela. And their population has been so decimated by the genocide that they are only a few thousand people in an area the size of Switzerland. And so you have to imagine how hard it is for them to protect that area from poachers, from miners, from loggers, um, who are oftentimes either operating illegally, but with kind of like backhanded support from government. For example, <clears throat> Bolsonaro knew that these garimperos, that these min- miners were going to the Yanomami territories, raping their women, kidnapping their children, killing their children, throwing them in the river, 
uh, contaminating their 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 water supply with mercury. He knew that was happening, and he gave those miners his support. He said that he was going to legalize mining in Brazil, and he purposely did not deploy the Egyptian, um, sorry, Brazilian military to go in there and defend um, the, this territory because clearly they cannot defend it by themselves. It's too big, and there's so little of them, and they're dying daily. And so this, you know, we're seeing where it goes, but this could amount to, you know, charges, crisis, crimes against humanity. This is willful genocide by ignoring, knowing that these miners were there, they were poisoning water supplies and killing the tribe, but not sending in the army to help them. That just goes to show you whose interests that Bolsonaro aligned with in his presidency. <clears throat> he reversed what Lula um, had done, which was create a, Lula had reversed deforestation, but with Bolsonaro, those numbers skyrocketed back up. <clears throat> and he's somebody that made it very clear that he was a friend to agribusiness. Um, these are the companies that are encouraging uh, people to cut, slash and burn the Amazon in order to put more farmland there to graze cattle or grow soy. And uh, he, Bolsonaro let the world know that he was going to be friends with these companies that were profiting from the destruction of the Amazon. And it was very clear which side he he wanted to be on. And so, yes, I think you're right. I think these elections in Brazil were historic for the whole world. And that <clears throat> those of us who care about the future of the Amazon and future of life on this planet breathed a sigh of relief. But, you know, Lula has now set a very big mandate for himself and made a lot of promises and I, for one, will be holding him accountable to all of them. How should we, like for any of us who are like wanting to be right there with you and like, you know, putting pressure, is there a way that you would say that that could be done? Like, so for instance, I know, again, thanks to my mother, who was certainly ahead of her time when I was little and I wanted to go to McDonald's on a school trip, I wasn't allowed because she told me that McDonald's burned down the rainforest to raise, to have cattle. And she was like, so that like, you know, Big Mac that all of your friends are getting, just know that like that is coming at the cost of like a rainforest and people's lives that you can't see, but very much that is what's happening. It's funny. I'm probably one of the only people that's like never had a Big Mac because I was so so affected by it at a young age, but I don't think like a lot of people don't put these things together. Like it's sort of like what happens in the Amazon has nothing to do with me, but you know, I think there's a really big moment there. We have to stop and think, but why like mining for what logging for what clearing land for what, like there are ways that we are connected as a society to what's happening there, arguably. <clears throat> yes. And, you know, there's the whole uh, America is the biggest importer of Brazilian beef. You know, like <clears throat> we need to look at that. You're right. A lot of these burgers from McDonald's can be traced back to deforested Amazon. Um, but also last year, a report came out linking brands like Prada, Nike, H&M, Reebok, who else? There's some other, I think even Burberry, maybe not Burberry, but definitely some other luxury brands and I'm not remembering correctly right now. But um, we're all linked to um, these supply chains sourcing their leather from, again, these farms that are deforesting the Amazon. So, you know, it's just become so um, ubiquitous now, you know, like prevalent in our society that like it's Every, every consumer decision that we make is rooted in some kind of extractivism, you know? Um, and so I think, yes, follow Amazon Watch and Amazon Frontlines, support their work, become educated on like which are the companies. I mean, it's JBL, it's the company in, in Brazil that is most um, <clears throat> responsible for uh, these cattle farms that are encroaching on Amazon territories. And there's definitely people getting very rich from these industries. Um, definitely make personal consumer choices, um, you know, that are informed. So if you, if you know that this product is, is contributing to deforestation in the Amazon, don't buy it. But then also let's work to change these systems so that it doesn't have to be a consumer choice. It's just it, that it just is banned like why I it just boggles the mind that we haven't thought to do that yet and I think 
we've got a lot of this is what patriarchy looks like you know it's very short-term goal oriented and this is where the feminine was feminine wisdom and intuition and more long-term visioning needs to come in and say hey this doesn't make sense one day very soon we're going to regret having cut down all this forest just for to satisfy ourselves with some burgers and, and handbags you know like you know and so this this now calls for more structural systemic change uprooting patriarchy up which is at the core core of all these imperialist extractist extract extractivist societies and values yeah well i think that that's 100 correct and a really good message to people to also do some deep diving into you know unfortunately we do live in a time where you need to sort of be looking into everything but I think that there's kind of a beauty in that because then we make informed decisions. And I'm just looking, I know this hour has flown by. So I wanted to ask you, Nat, and it's a really nice thing to end on, a nice topic to end on. But basically, I saw that you were working for a company or with a company or advocating for a company called Make Soil. And I I mentioned that my husband and I bought a farm last year, literally actually having watched Kiss the Ground and being in London during the pandemic made like a life decision within, I don't know, a week to move to Maine and try to like regenerate an old farm here. And I have become completely obsessed with composting. I would love to hear a little bit about your involvement with this. And just because it's something that I feel that so many people could be engaging with and it's such a positive solution to such a huge issue we have which is food waste and finding organic ways to fertilize or build up topsoil so could you speak just a little bit about that as our last sort of topic so my connection with make soil um happened last year when I met the founder Josh Whitten and he basically he he infected me with his contagious enthusiasm around the regenerative uh the regenerative potential at all of our fingertips that is the act of composting which is making soil and I hadn't ever thought of composting in that way um uh, but he explained to me that it really is the one thing that every human can start doing to start becoming more regenerative, to giving back to the earth in reciprocity for all that she gives us. Um, And it's the easiest, most accessible thing that we can all start doing that doesn't involve us changing, like eating choices, you know, eating habits, which is something that um, a lot of people have a hard time with if you say, you know like oh we need to eat less meat to to make sure that you know our we're not um taking too much from the earth people get very defensive like well why should i have to give up meat but this isn't asking you to give up anything in fact it's just asking you to take the simple um take the effort sometimes it's not always simple i understand but um make the effort to not put your food in the trash where it's going to go to landfill and turn into methane and um, going to increase uh, warming on the planet. That's what happens when we put our food just in the regular trash. Um, That's because we're not familiar with and honoring the carbon cycle. That food is actually organic matter. And when composted, when turned when when composted when decomposed correctly that can become nutrient dense rich soil that we can put back in our gardens and on the earth and actually there's a statistic that i think is really hopeful that i'll leave everybody on but if we just increase all the soil organic matter on the farm on all farmable lands on earth by just a little over one percent we can um reverse uh the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to pre-industrial levels so seriously that, yeah <laughs> we just need to increase all the organic matter on, on the soil I mean that just that's going to involve everybody composting and making soil and if we just like think about that like most farms have like no topsoil no fertile soil left if we just increase that topsoil by this much by one inch um or by one percent 
then yeah, that would sequester enough carbon to basically reverse all the damage that we've done since the industrial revolution. I mean, that's amazing. So it's really, it's simple. It's accessible. Um, if you if you can't do it yourself, this is why it makes it so brilliant because he's um, put together a map, a global map, wherever you are in the world, where you can put in your your address and find people who are making soil that you can drop your food scraps at. Mm-hmm. And and yes, and there's no excuse anymore for putting it in the trash because you you should be either composting it yourself or taking it to someone who can do it for you. So, yeah, it's, that's a good note to end on. I love that. Okay. Well, my final question was going to be what's making you feel the most hopeful about this year, but would, is it arguable to say that maybe it's make soil? Pardon? I was going to say my final question is always what's making you feel the most help, hopeful oh. like, at this moment. And I was like, but I, I don't know, maybe it's make soil or is there something else that you want to end with? I think that, I think that the fact that, you know, we, this whole conversation has been about the wonderful work of Kiss the Ground and what Indigenous people have done in the past and these like really abstract and and grand scale visions of regeneration. But yeah, I'd just like to like distill that now into the into the um, the micro like this is actually something that we can be authors of too we don't have to just watch it on our tvs what you know or think i have to have a farm to do that like it's as simple as putting your food scraps in a compost bin and turning that into soil so yeah regeneration is at all of our fingertips I love that. Well, thank you so much, Nat. And thank you for everything that you're doing and taking the time to chat with us today. And yeah, just um, just know that you're inspiring very many. And, and thank you for all your wisdom. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Cora. Lovely chatting. Bye.